You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Pipefitters Local 533 and the International Association of Firefighters Local 42. Pipefitters Local 533, being the best in the industry, is earned. Our craftsmanship, brotherhood, training, and job safety make the difference. Building and buying union creates better wages and living standards for all working families. And... Greater Kansas City Firefighters Local 42 of the International Association of Firefighters represents 12 bargaining units within the metropolitan area made up of firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, and prosecuting attorneys. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, it's Thanksgiving, and we thought it would give us an opportunity to appreciate the work of our volunteer programmers on the Heartland Labor Forum throughout 2023 by playing clips of some of our best shows and as a kind of review of labor highlights from the year. Our volunteer, Mark Galis, has nobly sacrificed his Thanksgiving week to review past shows and make the selection. We want to thank him, too, and offer him a symbolic plate of union-produced turkey to gobble up. In the news, the SAG after settlement is a lot to be thankful for. Pharmacists are too stressed out to celebrate the holiday, and just to sober you up after your big dinner, Airline union leaders warn of near misses because of a shortage of flight controllers. Our feature at the end of the show is Washington Window on Workers. It's with Mark Grunberg. We'll talk about President Biden's new memorandum on international labor rights. Now for the news. side November 23rd 2023. The Kansas City Labor Beacon did a great job of reporting on the settlement of the Screen Actors Guild or SAG-AFTRA strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers or AMPTP. The union had been on strike since July 14th. When the strike started one SAG-AFTRA member told us that he thought it would last until the holidays. Well it almost made it. The settlement was reached November 9th, and a few days later, members approved the agreement 86 to 14 percent. The union issued a statement which said, in a contract valued at over $1 billion in new wages and benefits plan funding, we have achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes above pattern minimum compensation increases and unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect members from the threat of AI and for the first time establishes a streaming participation bonus. Our pension and health caps have been substantially raised, which will bring much needed value to our plans. 
In addition, the deal includes numerous improvements for multiple categories, including outsized compensation increases for background performers and critical contract provisions protecting diverse communities. The union said that this contract will enable many different types of members to gain sustainable careers. Fran Drescher, union president, called the deal a paradigm shift of seismic proportions. Remember the walkouts of CVS pharmacists here in Kansas City a few weeks ago? Well, it wasn't just a flash in the pan. The Labor Beacon reported that the accidental pharmacist hashtag pizza is not working and RX Comedy are collaborating with the International Association of Machinists or IAM affiliate Healthcare to take public their effort to address unsafe staffing levels at pharmacies and dangerously high workloads throughout the industry. They are launching PharmacyGuild.org. Here's a clip from Bloomberg Television three weeks ago interviewing a former Walgreens pharmacist, Shane Jerominski. Give us a sense of what you and other pharmacists are looking to achieve by walking off the job. Yeah, so the main concern for pharmacists is not their rates of pay, but the ability to be able to be insured hours for technicians and to have better working conditions across the board and pay for technicians. Our technicians are the backbone of every pharmacy. When you walk into a store, you might see six people behind the counter, if you're lucky, if you're in a well-staffed store. That's not the case all the time, but most of those people behind the counter are technicians, and they're making just as much as fast food employees in most places. So in order to retain that top talent, we really need to have technicians have a better rate of pay. Yeah, I I think six is pretty generous. Usually I see maybe one person who's overworked. Can you describe, Shane, what a typical day looks like for a pharmacist, a a technician at Walgreens versus, say, five years ago? Sure. So five years ago, there was a flu shot season and then there was a ramping up during that time where we'd be giving vaccinations. But right now, Walgreens and CVS are just in love with that margin associated with vaccinations. And since COVID, it's really ramped up that there's no longer a flu shot season, that we've become vaccination clinics who also happen to fill prescriptions in their spare time. So technicians are there trying to get those prescriptions out the door, but at the same time, processing vaccinations, working with insurance companies to make sure that things are covered. Uh, All of this while answering the phones and doing all these other tasks that help with the margins for Walgreens and CVS, but don't really they're not focused on the two things that we're supposed to be doing, giving vaccinations and safely and accurately checking prescriptions for patients. Is there a sense here, Shane, when we talk about kind of what the pharmaceutical industry is sort of involved into, I mean, the pharmacists, I should say, industry has sort of evolved into with some of those issues that you just talked about. Is there any sort of sense here that if uh, this continues to move in the direction that that maybe ends up bolstering the independent pharmacists in a way uh, that they actually kind of reassert the role that, quite frankly, they had in most of our lives a couple of decades ago and beyond. Sure, I would say that that would be absolutely correct. Most people fall in love with the the model once they walk into an independent pharmacy. You know, pharmacists were at one time the most accessible healthcare professional available. And you knew your pharmacist sometimes better than you knew your doctor. And they will fall in love with the idea of working in an independent, going into an independent pharmacy and having that feel where it's really patient first. Mm -hmm. But independent pharmacies are really struggling because of the insurance reimbursements right now. Pharmacy benefits managers have hamstrung a lot of independent pharmacies and they're, they're a dying profession. And I'm sad to see that. So pharmacy has a lot of problems right now, but reimbursement is definitely involved in that. And if we don't have PBM reform, you will not have independent pharmacies a decade from now. It seems like you're kind of pushing up against a stone here. I mean, as I'm sure you know, these are structural changes that go far beyond just Walgreens and CVS and the like here. This also has to do with regulation and legislation that has sort of allowed these companies to sort of uh, blow up and prosper in the way that they have here. So if this is the new normal, meaning uh, the big PBM model here, uh, how do you, uh, as, a, in, as a pharmacist, and for, and for that matter, your peers, particularly those that are looking to unionize here, is there any any hope that they'll be able to sort of make those gains uh, on uh, getting better working conditions and pay? Well, yes. What's coming up in the next week, Farmageddon is what they're dubbing it. 
is really the flashpoint was Kansas City, the Kansas City walkouts that occurred last month. Uh, 24 CVS pharmacies within the Target channel in Kansas City uh, got together and they were really upset because Target is, is the lowliest of the low in CVS because they're, they have a smaller amount of prescription volume. So they're last on the list of, of, of priorities for a company like CVS. And they even though those stores are open for 64 hours, They've, been they've only been given 20 hours of technician help. So essentially, that's the pharmacist by themselves. That six number that I threw out at the beginning is way, way out of range for those target pharmacies. They were actually operating with just a pharmacist behind the counter for most of the time that they're open. And even if you're doing 100 or 150 prescriptions, you have to remember you might have 100 vaccination appointments uh, as well so anyone can be overwhelmed with that amount of uh, that amount of work that's like running a mcdonald's by yourself except for the cheeseburgers can kill you finally just to sober you up there are problems again in the skies and it's not the weather rather as pai reports it's a shortage of air traffic controllers Right now, up there in the blue, there are too many near misses of planes. In fact, there were 23 near misses in the last year, up from 16 in the 12 months before that. While that's a small share of the millions of flights the National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Hammondy testified in Congress on November 9th that the trend is going in the wrong direction. Had near misses been crashes, at least 1,300 people would have died. Hammondy, along with the presidents of NATCA, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, and ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, all said a big part of the problem is a continuing controller shortage. The NATCA president said there are approximately a thousand fewer certified professional controllers than there were a decade ago. In addition, understaffing also requires FAA to assign mandatory overtime to controllers on a regular basis, which leads to fatigue. Fatigue introduces unnecessary risk in the system. Chronic fatigue and stress multiply that risk. That's the news from our side. I'm Judy Ansel. We plant the food. We drive the cab. We run the lab We build the bridges We fly the plane We do the work This is our day We do the work We do the work We do the work This is our day That was John Fromer with We Do the Work, the theme song from the long-running PBS series of the same name about America's working class. I'm Mark Galis. Tonight, we look back on some highlights from the Heartland Labor Forum in 2023. Our producers, programmers, and contributors have put together some 45 hours of shows so far this year. And that doesn't include the countless hours spent coming up with show ideas, contacting, researching, and interviewing guests, and editing the shows. In putting tonight's program together, I was struck by the wide range of topics we've covered in the context of the American worker and workplace. First up, we'll hear from Richard Meller, retired AFSCME member. Tino Scalisi interviewed Meller back in August about the philosophy of labor. The interesting thing when you start, said about labor and philosophy is, I mean, we all have a philosophy in, in, in a way. I mean, there's ideas in, in society. We're all... We, we exist in society, not independently from it. And so um, I think the most important thing uh, uh, and a big difference I noticed here, I was no revolutionary or anything uh, uh, when I came here, I, but I was a worker. I knew I was a worker. And when I came to America, I got a job with a water company. Well, I worked in a factory in New York City. But I remember the guys over here, I worked for a water utility and um 
I now retired there, a very good job, union job, public sector. And I remember guys would say to me, well, uh, uh, you, you know, we're middle class. And, and that was sort of insulted. I mean, I've never had any aspirations to be middle class at all. And, and uh, the, word, the fact that they use the term, and it's used here, that we're, we're middle class. I've never researched it, Tino, but I've got a feeling American workers didn't call themselves middle class in 1930 and 1934 or something like that. That's a product of the post-war era, I would guess, uh, and the, the, quote, American dream. But that, to me, um, uh, uh, was a big difference. Not that I was a political person. I've never voted or Labour or anything like that. Uh, um, but it, that the question is, the big issue when we're talking about philosophy and under, understanding the world is is that uh, is class consciousness. I mean, if you look at everything around us, is to teach us. And I'll tell you, I was a delegate of my Central Labour Council for years. And I remember arguing back in the late eighties and mid eighties about uh, and, and raising this whole idea about undermining working class culture, the, the team concept. We're all in this together. Uh, um, the names that they call, I'm an assistant, I'm a team member, I'm a, uh, you, you know what I mean? No, you're a worker, you're not a team member, you're a worker. You never control the ball, you know? And so um, all of this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, we're in the belly of the beast here. And all of the, uh, um, what, uh, the ideology of the ruling class, the capitalist class in, in society, to convince us, that we're all, there's no such thing as class consciousness. I think that one of the big issues today is, uh, um, is the, the American worker, the US American worker, because Mexico is American, so is Canada, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, is us under, is seeing ourselves as a class unto ourselves with our own class interests independently of the employers. I've just wrote a little letter in my, for my local paper where one of the former union guys who's a vice mayor and he went to Vietnam with the uh, Chamber of Commerce to talk, uh, uh, try to build, you know, uh, uh, trade and everything yeah. else. And he says he's, he's represents the whole community. Well, no, no, he doesn't. He's there on a business trip. He's trying to get, you know what I mean? But this, the whole idea, if you look at um what, what is it? Is it, it you know, we're in a country, the land we're we're indivisible. Mm. All of these efforts to obscure the question of class and that we're working, we're working class people with their own distinct interests. And that was when we talked a little bit about Marx earlier on. And that to me, um, Marxism and Marx's view of the world helped me uh, uh, understand that history also has this history of class struggle. He says in the Communist Manifesto, his, all history means written history is the history of class struggle. In April, Judy Ansel interviewed Saul Schneiderman, a curator of labor history, culture, and folklore. Judy asked Saul a question near and dear to my heart, as the resident labor song guy for the show, what makes a good labor song? Well, you started off... Um let me just say historically with a with a the roll of the union on which was recorded by the almanac singers in 1941 which is really the first album of labor songs that were sold commercially and had some of the great labor standards uh on it uh, we shall not be moved union made solidarity forever roll the union on so what makes a good labor song uh, I'll give you a short answer, and in my opinion, a little bit of a longer answer. You said it in your introduction, the word inspiration. I think a good labor song is one that inspires the listener, in this case, uh, the worker, to take some action. And um, as I think your listeners know, our labor movement today is a minority movement. And so we need cultural tools to create empathy for our cause, to reinforce solidarity, and build some good morale uh, among our ranks. And I think a song, I would argue, can achieve this by, just as you said, inspiring us to do the right thing and join the union. And that word, inspiration, Judy, is actually right up front in Labor's anthem, Solidarity Forever. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. And I would argue, Judy, that 
Today, our ability to inspire may be more important than our ability to inform. Now, that's the short answer. Can I give you a little bit of a longer one? Oh, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, Yip Harburg, uh, who wrote the wonderful song Over the Rainbow, right. said this about songs. He said that if you think about it, words represent thoughts and music represents feelings. So, what a song is, is a feeling thought. And that's what gives it what Pete Seeger called the power of song. So if I could give you a, a, a short example of this. In 1995, I was at a rally in Detroit for the striking uh, newspaper workers. And on, on the stage was Elise Bryant, who was the chair of the Labor Heritage Foundation, and our great labor singer, Ann Feeney, who unfortunately died two years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, Ann, while... while and got up to sing. I was standing next to two auto workers. It were these two men, uh, stiff as a board. They had their arms folded. They weren't very inspired uh, by the speeches they were hearing. And Anne got up and sang her song about scabs. Um, they've got no brains. They've got no heart. Scabs are tearing our community apart. And she goes on and on with the song. Uh, tearing down scabs and these guys start loosening up a little bit and by the end of the song they're high-fiving each other they're laughing out loud Um, they almost did a little dance there you know uh, uh, in front of the stage and after the rally i went up to ann and i said ann these two guys were standing there like frozen statues and your song melted them and she thought about it for a minute and said well you know song some saw sometimes you got to use a blowtorch <laughs> and if you know Ann Feeney's music, yeah. um, she was a, a blowtorch. And I think that's what we need today as we revive our labor movement. That was the aforementioned Ann Feeney with Dump the Bosses Off Your Back. In August, as part of the Labor Leaders series, Tom Gebkin and Judy Morgan interviewed Scott Brown, business manager for the Machinist Union Lodge 778. Here, Scott talks about the incredibly wide range of workers and industries covered by his union. We're, we're definitely a unique local in, in terms of our membership and the diversity of shops that we represent. Originally, we were chartered as an automotive lodge, but we've seen several mergers with other locals throughout the years, including some district lodges. We now have a large variety of private sector shops and manufacturing. We've got a few service contracts, SCA. Those are located at Whiteman Air Force Base in Knob Noster. We've got a couple public sector municipalities, public works, water, sewer, and fleet maintenance members, the city of Lee Summit and Blue Springs, as well as automotive mechanics, including our diesel and truck mechanic shops. A lot of the shops are throughout the Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas areas. We go as far south as Webb City and Joplin for our brothers and sisters that work at WebCorp and a UPS barn in Joplin. We have several UPS barns scattered across this side of the state, including Chillicothe, Higginsville, Sedalia, St. Joe, and both sides of Kansas City. Further into Kansas, we have Topeka Foundry and Ironworks, 
SPX Cooling Technologies, which is located in Olathe. We have Bob Allen Ford and Morse Chevrolet in Overland Park and Shawnee Mission Ford. Um, that's just to name a few. Our largest shop in terms of numbers is Honeywell FM&T, which is closing in on approximately 2,000 workers to date. And then we've got some small shops that are just um, one-member units, such mm-hmm. as Belger Cartage, as well as a lone mechanic at Greyhound Lines. We've got two contracts at the Lake City Army Ammunition Plant, one with Northrop Grumman, who manufactures 20-millimeter munitions, and the larger contractor out there is that of Olin Winchester. Uh, they manufacture small arms of 5.56, 7.62, and 50 cal ammunition, as well as the Lynx. And then we've also got the folks that service and maintain that facility. That's a wide range of folks from a one-person shop, you said, to uh, 2,000 at Honeywell. How many contracts do you negotiate, and how do you handle all those contracts? I think at the moment we're sitting right around... 30 contracts, maybe a little bit more at over 50 locations. And so how that happens is just for an example, like the auto dealers. So that's one contract with multiple dealerships underneath that one contract. How large is your uh, membership at Lodge 778? We're sitting right around probably 3,000 active members. It's probably pushing... 3,200 at this point. I haven't looked at the numbers in the past couple of weeks when, with the way Honeywell's been higher and it, you know, bounces up and down. It fluctuates right. quite a bit. I was surprised to learn that there's a traveling musicians union. In April, Tino Scalisi spoke with Aaron Fowler, president of Local 1000, about the important work the union does for its members. So we're about 30 years old. And it, it started uh, at, at the Great Labor Arts Council, actually, in some conversations with some of our members, Charlie King and John McCutcheon and John O'Connor and lots of other people, Ann Feeney. And um, they were they were members of well, when they had when they went to different towns, they would have to uh, submit their contracts to the local. So if they were in Chicago, you know, it was the Chicago local. If they were in New York, it was 802. Or if they were in Nashville, you know, it was the Nashville local. And they said, we we need we need a local for those of us who are in a different a different town every night. And that's how this conversation started way more than 30 years ago. Um in order to make sure that those of us that travel and that are, are in different towns have uh, a, a union that we can submit our contracts to, get pension payments uh, as a part of that, and that that's really that's really how it's how it started more than more than thirty years ago. It's so funny, Aaron. Um, well, you mentioned some names there, and I, I don't know John McCutcheon actually does the title song of our show. Uh, oh, nice! Labor forum, and we've had him on as a guest uh, on several occasions before. Uh, I think, in fact, I interviewed John McCutcheon after I'd seen him uh, play at a, a folk uh, festival here in in, in Kansas. Um, nice. I think that it might surprise some people. I was surprised when I heard you mention that there were uh, uh, payments made to to pension plans, or that there are other sort of provisions of traveling musicians' contracts, or that they even have contracts at all. The going ethic in the world is that uh, that musicians are, uh, you know, they, they give us all this fantastic art. Uh, they dedicate so much time of their lives, so much blood, sweat, and tears to their art and their craft and their performance and uh, entertaining and um, helping people, uh, you know, reach parts of themselves that they never, they can't otherwise uh, have access to. And then they expect them to play for free. Right. Exactly. Or for candy. Yeah. Or for, you know. Or, or for tips, right? Tips or, or you know, whatever, you know, a, a, a cup of coffee or a beer, right? And, yeah, it's oh. not – and that's one of the, the things that Local 1000 is really about is how do we make sure that all musicians are treated fairly? And that means um, a lot of different things, but it includes finances, you know, making sure that we have minimum scale um, – wages for our our performances, making sure that we have contract protection, make sure that we have the ability to put money into a pension, making sure that our, our the venues are safe. Um, 
there's just so much so much to that performing and and then we move beyond that to you know fighting for uh streaming rights how do we make sure that 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 musicians now that CDs uh, are, you know, sometimes it, we wonder whether it's worth our, our dollars that we put into that, mm. whether they're worth it. Is then you put stuff on up on online and people can can download it and stream it for for nothing sure. really, uh, and and artists and artists get very little of that. So those are some of the kinds of things that we are organizing around. was Iris Dement with Going Down to Sing in Texas, which was our labor song of the month back in March. Each week, there is a rotating five-minute feature at the end of the show covering labor songs, labor history, workplace safety, legal rights, and what's happening in Washington, D.C. From July, as part of the Remember Our Struggle feature, here's Ariana Blockman discussing the 1937 Woolworth sit-down strike. Many people today probably haven't heard of Woolworth. Though they are technically still around, they used to be Walmart in a time before Walmart. Woolworth was a five-and-dime variety store, the predecessor to our modern big-box retail stores. Woolworth basically was the original Walmart. They were so popular and so successful, in fact, that they were responsible for building the world's tallest building in 1913, which remained the tallest until 1930. By 1937, Woolworths had over 200 locations all over the country and even in Cuba. Woolworth's sell model probably sounds familiar. Attract as many consumers as possible with low prices backed up by extremely low worker wages. Woolworth's had racist policies aimed at keeping non-white shoppers out of their stores, and also had racist policies aimed at only hiring young white women to work in their stores. 75% of their 62,000-person workforce was between the ages of 16 and 24, working up to nine-hour days, six days a week. These mostly young women were on their feet all day long, either attending to customers or cleaning. Young women were targeted specifically for employment because of the employment discrimination faced by women in most other occupations at the time, and the few people who did employ them knew they were desperate and would put up with terrible conditions and low pay, and liked that fact. It was also believed that a workforce practically full of teenage women would never unionize. But then came the Flint sit-down strike in February of 1937, and the whole country was watching. Many people were inspired to try likewise. Less than a month later, our women at Woolworth presented their list of demands to management. Management was shocked and non-receptive, and with the guidance and support of Local 705 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union, they declared their strike the next day on February 27th. At 11 a.m., Floyd Lowe, at 11 a.m., Floyd Lowe, an organizer of the Waitresses Union, blew a whistle and yelled, Strike! 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 Young women at the cash registers stopped where they were and ceased work, quickly leading to a backup of bewildered customers trying to leave the store with their items. The store manager tried to regain control of the situation by ushering the striking women to a boardroom upstairs, but it was more a disciplinary meeting than a negotiation. The meeting ended with him begging the 108 women to return to work with the promise of addressing their concerns on Monday. But they wisely weren't buying it. They also weren't leaving. The strikers demanded a 10-cent raise on their existing 25 cents an hour, time and a half on any hours worked over 48 in a week, 
50-cent lunches for the waitresses and other food counter workers, free uniforms and laundering of their uniforms, seniority rights, the hiring of future workers through their new union hiring hall, and no retaliation against the strikers. Upper management soon joined the fight, and a district Woolworth manager threatened to lock out not just the girls in the striking store, but also every other Woolworth in the entire city of Detroit. This actually strengthened the resolve of the women to stay and fight. The women were far from idle. They elected strike leaders and organized themselves into various committees to maintain their tiny temporary settlement, everything from food and sanitation to entertainment, as most of the women had never before spent the night away from their homes before the strike. As soon as they had their little settlement in order, they invited the press. The public was fascinated by the photos showing dozens of young militant women workers having a grand time occupying their workplace and demanding better conditions, a move credited with providing the strikers the protection of positive public sentiment, which made it a lot harder to send police in to drag them out. The chef's union even brought in food, and a sympathetic local doctor made daily house calls to keep everyone healthy. Before long, a second Detroit Woolworth was also on strike, and the announcement was made that if a deal wasn't reached by Saturday, a nationwide strike wave would begin. Union hotel workers began picketing outside to show their support. The president of the UAW gave a speech in front of the store, and strike funds poured in from the AFL and other unions nationwide. Other workers across Detroit also launched their own strikes, including workers at Stouffer's. Finally, on Friday at 5.30 p.m., an agreement was reached. They won all their demands, including half their paychecks for the week of their strike, and raises for the cooks who hadn't even joined them on strike. But the best part of all was they had won all of this not only for themselves, but for all the employees of all 40 Woolworths across Detroit. From the same show in July, I interviewed Tyler Wallachek, a labor journalist who writes for the online news organization Truthout, about the big business of union busting. Yeah, this is something I found surprising the true extent of this and it's become as you said it's grown from a cottage industry into a full-blown multi-million dollar industry to the tune of 340 million dollars that we know about so this kind of thing began in the 60s in the wake of the upheavals of radical activism which really made a lot of employers and members of the establishment uh quite fearful of of potential change in the status quo And as part of a broader crackdown, this sort of strategy of using lawyers and experts, including like sociologists and psychologists that were deployed to develop anti-union tactics. So it's the, the industry is really intensely secretive. We don't know a ton about it, including its full extent. But the only reason we know anything at all is because of what's called the LMRDA, which is a law from 1959. And that stands for the Labor Management Reporting Disclosure Act which requires that a certain amount of spending on anti-union activity is disclosed. Now, it's there's a lot of loopholes in that law, in part due to lobbying from corporate interests, but they have been forced to disclose at least $340 million of spending, which is highly significant. And again, that's only what we know about. It's quite possible there's a lot more. Again, the LMRDA is kind of riddled with loopholes, That's the result of actions by business lobbies like the Chamber of Commerce, legal associations like the American Bar Association, since lawyers have a lot of profit wrapped up in this kind of thing. And what they managed to do is work to kill an Obama administration era change to the law called the Persuader Rule that would have required greater disclosure. But... Thanks to them, we uh, are unable to see the full scope of their activities. So it's it's remarkable, really, the degree to which these kind of anti-labor consultants have become organized and entrenched. They have their own trade group. They have their own conferences. Uh, and it's hosted by a group called the Council for a Union-Free Environment, or Q. And what, what's funny about Q is that I only learned what the acronym stands for from external sources. They don't list that anywhere on their website. And I have to feel like it's kind of a blatant thing to call yourself, a council for a union-free environment. Maybe they decided, you know, that was a little too unsubtle and are, are <laughs> down it. But uh, regardless, they put on this trade conference that The Intercept managed to uh, infiltrate at some point and put out some really great reporting on the kind of talk that goes on there, which is obviously, you know, virulently anti-union to the point of, 
I think they compared union organizers to terrorists and other kind of things you would expect from an in-group meeting of anti-union consultants. But uh, regardless, you know, this industry has expanded to a massive extent and you will see all kinds of managements turning to them now. It's not just, you know, traditional factories and warehouses like Amazon or, you know, service industries like Starbucks. It is media, it's universities uh, in, fa- in the face of the adjuncts and grad student organizing that's gone on in recent days. It's really, it's the go-to service for managements and uh, bosses that have employee descent in the ranks and want to stymie that immediately. Well, let me introduce myself. Jack Shyster is my name. I'm a management consultant. Union busting is my game. I'm a master of the con job. I'm an expert at the hoax. And I make my living stealing bread from the mouths of working folk. I'm a union buster. The bosses trust the aid. I help keep their employees overworked and underpaid. He's a union buster. The bosses trust the aid. He helps keep their employees overworked and underpaid. Days we use gun thugs, we use geeks, finks, and goons. Nowadays we use fancy words, but we sing the same old tune. Pitting folks against each other, spreading hatred, fear, and lies. Cutting down the hopes of workers who are trying to organize. I'm a union buster, the bosses trust the aid. I help keep their employees overworked and underpaid. He's a union buster, the bosses trust the aid. He helps keep their employees overworked and underpaid. It just wouldn't be the Heartland Labor Forum without a song by Labor's troubadour, Joe Glazier. That was Union Buster. Next up is another interview by Tom Gebkin and Judy Morgan. In May, they spoke with Commissioner John Carpenter of the Clay County Commission about a new responsible bidder ordinance for public works projects. Clay County government, just like any uh, of your local governments, your state government, federal, uh, does a lot of business with contractors. And that's any kind of capital project, infrastructure, roads and bridges. Basically, the idea is we want to make sure that we're doing business with uh, contractors that that do right by their employees. Um, And that is in the realm of safety uh, and making sure that everybody is uh, has a good track record, uh, hasn't been suspended in the past, follows safety protocols that folks are adequately trained, supervisors uh, are 30-hour OSHA trained, and, uh, in the realm of, of pay and benefits, uh, making sure that you know we're doing business uh, with, with folks who uh, do right by their employees, pay them prevailing wage, uh, offer them benefits like uh, health care and health coverage, um, you know, without putting that officially into uh, law, or in this case, you know, county ordinance, it it may or may not be the case on a on a project by project basis whether or not uh, a contractor you know is meeting those obligations. And and it was my really strong belief that uh, when we're using taxpayer money, um, we ought to be insisting on those things, not just sort of hoping that they're happening. So is it a it's a contract between the uh, the government? The Clay County in this case, and whichever contractor is doing the work, basically. Yeah, that's right. I, so, so there are two sort of main provisions to the the responsible litter ordinance that we passed in Clay County. Um, one, uh, which will be the more uh, common use of it, is with regard to any kind of county project over seventy five thousand dollars, which is the as you know the threshold for when requiring prevailing wage uh, uh, kicks in. So the other piece is uh, with regard to if the county engages in tax incentives, um, so TIFs, tax abatements of any kind, then we would also require those projects to meet these standards of prevailing wage, safety standards, benefit standards. And so it would apply in both situations. Now, Clay County historically hasn't done at the county level a lot of that, a lot of the tax abatement TIF stuff. Uh, It has done some in the past, 
but the the bulk of where this will apply is on on all the county projects our capital projects and our infrastructure projects um, and then to the extent that in the future the county engages in tiffs and tax abatements uh it would apply in those scenarios as well so if you decided to do some kind of improvements to your county courthouse let's say that would these provisions would impact at those particular projects absolutely you know we've got a number of you know, county buildings in different locations, uh, the county courthouse, one among them. Um, and then even more frequently than that would be road and bridge projects, um, which, of course, Clay County, like any county, has a lot of roads and bridges to maintain. And they are often uh, big enough projects that they would qualify under the standards, you know, the $75,000 plus standard. And so, yeah, in all of those, in all of those construction type projects, um, all of the provisions of the, of the ordinance will apply. 2023 was another tumultuous year for the railroads. In March, Christina Dismang and Michael Savoir spoke with three railroad workers, Jeff Kurtz, Ross Gruders, and Morty Mortensen, about ongoing railway safety issues. Ross, would you concur that just reducing the length of the, the trains could make a significant difference in these derailments? If nothing else, it will make the derailment less severe. And and just for listeners, uh, the, the difference between the electronic controlled brakes and the, and the air brakes that we currently have, if you if you picture an air system, so picture a, uh, you know, you've got a long train, let's say a mile long, the air is controlled from the head end locomotive, and it goes from there back to the rear. Well, you can imagine that air takes a while to reach a mile when you're going to the rear. And, and so with today's current braking system, the reaction time is much, much slower. The brakes take longer to set up and apply to slow down or stop a train. What the electronic brakes do is that moves each brake to each individual car so that it instantaneously would be able to set and apply throughout uniformly throughout the whole entire train. So you can imagine how much quicker that even if you did have a situation where you derailed or something went wrong, it would stop the train incredibly uh, faster. Mm-hmm. Marty, you mentioned a minute ago that uh, the currently system of braking, uh, the, uh, the uh, air system, was uh, developed by Westinghouse way back in the 1880s. And it hasn't been revised much. In other words, it's still pretty much the uh, that part of antiquity, man, 100 plus years, uh, 150 years. And we're still using the same old stuff, only to save a buck or two. Now, makes no sense to me. Now, you know what's really crazy is, uh, you know, he created that in 1860. And, and just kind of like everyone that's listening, trying to, you know, wrap your head around this. The Civil War ended in 1865. So, you know, that's how long this, this braking system has been in play. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, like I said earlier, till 1893, the government regulated and told the railroads uh, that they had to have this braking system applied to all that. And it's the same thing. I mean, the, the railroad, it's like the, the two-man train crew that's going on as well is a, is a huge fight of ours as well. They want to get rid of uh, the two men in the cab and have one man. That's something that we have to pass. You know, we have been passing state by state, regulating that there's two men in the cab. Um, yeah, yeah. I can remember when, uh, of course, I may be telling my age, but I can remember when three and even more were the standard issue. You had the engineer, you had the fireman, you had the brakeman, you had the conductor. That was at least four that I remember when I worked for the railroads. Now, again, it's been a while ago, but to let one man operate an entire train seems just ludicrous. Uh, I, Jeff could probably speak better on those. I think he hired out as a fireman. I think he was shoveling coal in the, the engines back in the day. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I, I tell people I probably ran 3,000 trains with cabooses on them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I remember that era well. It was uh, the golden age of railroading. In fact, I remember one of my conductors telling me that, that we were going to look back on that age as the golden age. Uh, one, one of the things that we need to talk about is the fact that the rule books discourage you from using the air brakes. And you they, they're trying to save on brake shoes, so what they use is the dynamic brake, which essentially breaks the locomotives, but everything else in that train is just rattling around like a free, BB in a boxcar. Yeah, yeah, and that's where you get those in-train forces. So 
you know, the, the fact that that wreck in East Palestine uh, with the money that's going to cost, the NS could have bought brake shoes until the sun burns out. But we need we need to look at the rule books. I, there's we we need a general overhaul on on safety on, on the railroad. That was Bob Dylan with Railroad Bill, a song memorializing a notorious Robin Hood-style outlaw from the 1890s. I hope you've enjoyed our look back at some of the highlights from this year's Heartland Labor Forum programs. I'm Mark Galis. Happy Thanksgiving. Judy Anselm, it's time for Washington Window on Workers with Mark Grunberg. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the first ever presidential memorandum outlining a commitment by the United States to global workers' rights and directing federal agencies and departments to advance labor rights and worker empowerment around the world. Now, that is unprecedented, isn't it, Mark? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a brand new thing. And so what I want to do is give you an example of a workers' rights violation that I'm aware of that occurred last year in Honduras. And you can tell me how it's going to get fixed with this new memorandum. So it involves worker construction workers who are non-union, not organized in Honduras, who were building the latest American fortress, otherwise known as an embassy. State Department builds embassies all over the world with a U.S.-based contractor named B.L. Harbert, which is non-union in the United States, as far as I know, and which um, builds their embassies everywhere, it, it appears. And in this case, the workers were suffering from significant health and safety violations, injuries on the job. And Honduras had just repealed a temporary labor law, and the company wasn't respecting that law. And the U.S. embassy called the cops. Mm-hmm. And when I called the U.S. State Department, I talked to somebody on the Honduras desk. I said, don't you have any standards for la- enforcing labor rights in your own building in other countries? And he says, well, our only standard is to respect the labor laws of the country that we're in. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that those are really low standards in a lot of countries. And it, even in Honduras here, they weren't respect the contractor and the embassy were not respecting the rights of the workers under the current labor laws of Honduras. So what is this new policy going to do? Well, the new policy basically is going to reverse that answer. You know, the, the, in so many words, now they're going to now they're going to have the embassy staff tell the Honduran government, tell the contractor and tell the Honduran government. And it's more of the government to government than it is government, the contractor, that you've got to respect your workers' rights, you've got to give them decent pay, you've got to allow them to unionize, or we're going to start pulling trade, we're going to start pulling benefits, we're going to start pulling money, in so many words. Frankly, that's as far as it goes. Now, of course, if you've got a dictatorial government, government that, does, that is pretty lawless, you know, they, they could basically blow the U.S. embassy off, and then, then Biden has to take the next step, or the State Department has to take the next step. Whether the State Department will or not is another matter, but it's supposed to under this memo. Well, in this particular case, it was the new government democratically elected. But they're so scared of the United States Mm -hmm. that they do pretty much whatever the United States says. 
So maybe if the United States starts saying something different, uh, that'll have an effect. We could help. You make a really interesting point in the article you wrote about this. You said Biden's order buries the neoliberal, indeed capitalist, urged trade policies by presidents of both parties kowtowing to the corporate class. Some of those policies date back to the Gilded Age. And then you say those pacts and policies emphasize exploiting labor forces in developing nations from the Philippines to Panama by U.S. and other Western multinationals. Totalitarian or one-party regimes led or lead many of those nations, which feature few or no worker rights, low pay, and little environmental enforcement. So what you're saying is the U.S. is reversing decades of policy of protecting Mm -hmm. corporations Mm -hmm. often against Mm -hmm. workers. Yes. Yes, or trying to. Now, of course, the, the one problem, and I should have put this in the story, is, as we were just saying, this is no, this is November 2023. It's a year to the election. And even if it was an executive order, much less a memorandum of understanding, if the next president is the man with the orange hair, it could easily be tossed in the trash can. So why didn't Biden make this an executive order? That's a good question. Nobody brought it up. And what they had was not so much a press conference, was a, you know, an announcement of it for a very pro-union crowd who, of course, was not going to ask questions and just cheer everything. So I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you or for workers on that. Maybe this is just a campaign induced stunt in order to further build Joe Biden's reputation as the best president for labor in our history and not much else. The whole point is if they can get all the government agencies lined up due to the pressure on a Honduras, then it becomes more than just a stunt. Fill the bill, and I'm thinking of the Defense Department more than I'm thinking of (laughs) commerce or state. (laughs) And then you've got a problem. Yeah. Well, yeah, this thing has some some really awesome potential if it were ever taken seriously. And we're going to have to leave it at that. Have a a great Thanksgiving, Mark. Okay. Same with you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Okay. Good night. (laughs) night. Now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. Labor Notes. Secrets of a Successful Organizer trainings online Thursdays, November 30th, December 7th, and 14th, 6 to 8 p.m. Register at labornotes.org slash events slash 2023. Missouri Jobs with Justice end of year party, Tuesday, December 5th, 6 to 8 p.m. This will be at IBEW Local 124, 301 East 103rd Terrace, KCMO. RSVP at bit.ly slash kcparty2023. And save the date. The Labor Notes Conference is now accepting registrations April 19th to 21st, 2024 in Chicago near O'Hare Airport. Early registration is at labornotes.org events slash 2023. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. We're going to have uh, Elise Martini on. She's the new woman at the top of the Cement Masons Union. And Steve Gerconi of the Roofers Union. This is part of our series of KC Leaders. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Stay tuned for the Thursday night special. It's Economics for the People in their second show. It's with Sarisha and Taki. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride.